What's up, everybody? I'm David Bruner, Director of Adult Discipleship here at Paley Presbyterian Church. You are watching or listening to a recording of the first session in our adult education class, a class we are calling Until the End of the World, Heaven, Hell, and the Possibility of Universal Salvation. I hope you enjoy it. We had a great time. We're really looking forward to next week. If any of you listen to this and want to join us for future sessions, you are more than welcome to. It's not too late to jump in. We meet Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And all the information you need to join us on Zoom is on our website, paoliprez.org backslash adults. In this week's class, we spend a little time talking about people's lived experience in the church, especially as it pertains to issues of heaven, hell, and salvation. We listen to a great song by the Irish rock band U2 called Until the End of the World and have a little chat about it. And then I spend some time outlining at the end the agenda for the remainder of our class sessions. Happy learning. And if you have any questions, don't hesitate to drop me a line. David.Bruner at paoliprez.org. Blessings. Um, good evening and welcome. My name is Dr. David Bruner. I'm the Director of Mission and Adult Discipleship here at Paoli Presbyterian Church. I'm very glad that all of you could join us for this class, which we are calling Until the End of the World, Heaven, Hell, and the Possibility of Universal Salvation. Um, it is um, really exciting to see so many of you here. I'm just delighted that you've um, taken this time to come and learn a little bit with me um, about um, the Bible and our Christian tradition. Um, let me, uh, there's a lot I want to share with you tonight. Let me kick us off with a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this time. I thank you for gathering us here together. We know that wherever two or three are gathered together in the name of Jesus, he is there with them. And we thank you, Lord, that your son is here with us today in the power of your spirit. We ask God that you would, um, Help us to approach this truly awesome, um, complicated, humbling topic with reverence and curiosity and a willingness to learn. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us the things you want us to know. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, um, I've taken the liberty of muting all of you so that barking dogs or playing children, things like that won't disturb our time together. But as I talk, you should feel free to raise your hand or just unmute yourself and jump in. Um, when you're not talking, if you would do us all the favor of muting yourself again, that would be great. There's enough people in here that that could be distracting if we've got a lot of unmuted speakers. Okay, so um, this is a class that's about heaven and hell and um, different understandings of those topics and what it means to be saved, what it means to have faith and what our fate is or might be after death. These are big topics. Um, and so rather than just dive in, I actually wanted to begin with a question. Um, and you can think about this. The, the question is, when's the last time When's the last time you heard a sermon about hell? <laughs> or when's the last time you heard hell mentioned in a sermon? Um, is there a time that stands out 
what effects did it have on you? I see a few, yeah, I'm not sure if anyone's chiming in or not. Lisa, are you raising your hand? You're right. Here we go. Well, uh, you know, I was raised in the Catholic, you know, as a, a, a parochial school, and we heard about hell all the time. Really? <laughs> if you do this or, and you don't confess it, you're going to hell. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, <laughs> And was that that right? So that was pretty commonplace. And did it did it bother you as a kid? Yes, frightened me absolutely. Sure. Um, so let me let me start there. How many of you have had some sort of experience like that? How many of you heard um, something about hell as a kid and were a little scared or frightened? Anybody? Several of us. Yeah. Um, uh, Lisa, you were going to say something, and we didn't get to you. I want to. Yeah. Um, you're muted, my dear. Let's see. What? Somebody else. Oh, you said. Um, I went to a mass with Ron, my husband, who was Catholic, and um, the priest was talking about hell, and he and I was in my late twenties, and he scared the bajillies out of me. <laughs> um, and what exactly was so scary about us? I think that he made it so descriptive. And I, at that point, I thought, oh boy, I better wear very light clothes when I die because I was really afraid that's where I was gonna end up. Sure, yeah, okay. Um, and that was even as an adult, right? Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes these experiences are not unusual. Anyone else have an experience um, of hearing in a sermon or a Christian talk? I'll share one. Yeah. We, uh, we had to go to TAC rallies is what they were called when we were kids. They were supposed to be youth rallies uh, for all the kids from different area youth groups. And we grew up in the, the Free Will Baptist Church tradition. And the Hellfire and Brimstone sermon that was given to us scared us to death to where we thought that we, we wake up having nightmares thinking we were left behind. Yeah, sure. Um, and, you know, you're 14, yeah. you know, and they would talk about if you could open this floor and the demons could shriek, you would thank God that you were here and not there and all this stuff. You just be like, Oh my, you just overwhelm you. Yeah, sure. It's powerful stuff. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was in fifth grade, I went, um, I went with my friend, my best friend's youth group and he attended the like conservative evangelical church in our town. And we went and we played laser tag. And then there was a whole talk about the rapture, and um, it's important to accept Christ so you won't be left behind. And 90% of it went over my head, um, which was perhaps fortunate at the time. I think it would have really uh, given me a good scare. Otherwise. But like it, the 10% I did understand was sort of, oh gosh, I don't know about this. I don't, I don't hear a lot about this at my church. And it was, it was very challenging. It was, it was a really difficult experience. Um, What um, beliefs, so we've already touched a little bit on the sort of beliefs you might have heard as a young person about heaven or hell or certain things send you to hell or certain things send you to hell. 
what sort of beliefs did you grow up with around heaven and hell? Um, were you raised with a particularly strong set of beliefs around salvation and damnation, or was it just kind of more laid back and in the atmosphere? Um, I was raised Catholic, and um, I don't. I think more more that everything was that you could think of was a sin. I mean, it was big on sin. Everything yeah. was sin, and um, of course that was bad. And right. then I remember being told the, the God, and I don't know why you would tell a child this, that God was on your right and the devil was on your left. So I would wake up in the middle of the night thinking, oh my gosh, I'm on the left side of the bed. And I'd like rolling over to the other <laughs> side. Um, those kind of images stick with you, you know, when you're a kid and uh, it's scary. Yeah, that's, that's really wild. So he, I have no idea where in the Bible or in the Christian theological tradition you would get that sort of particular idea, right? Um, that's, that's very interesting. Um, and it, certainly, right, the idea of being a church being big on sin, um, by which you mean like emphasizing sin, lots of sin, lots of dangers of sin, right? Um, would that this were only a preoccupation found in some Catholic churches, right? It is, of course, found in some Catholic churches, just like it's found in, in some Protestant churches. And yeah, that can be, if you're not, it's good to be realistic about sin. It's good to be honest about sin, I would say. But I also think the, um, what? there is a focus on sin that can outweigh a focus on redemption <laughs> yeah. um, and on the power of the spirit that can be unhelpful. Um, thank you, Ro. Um, anyone else want to share? Heather. So Ro, that reminded me of the story that uh, a former uh, boss of mine told me. The nuns used to tell her that if she continued to sleep on her stomach, she was going to hell. So her favorite position to sleep was on her tummy. And um, she had to switch that because she did not want to go to hell. Um, I don't know where that conception came from, but that's, that's a, what they were teaching. That's a doozy. My goodness. Um, I think it wasn't unnormal to see people go to the altar two or three times, uh, you know, in a month because they were terrified of damnation. That yeah. was that, you know, I, I think like you had said just a second ago, the focus on the sin being so much more prevalent in the discussion than the, the focus of the redemption, um, that it just drove them tears and just sprint to the, to the front. Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, you never, you never want to get in the way of someone asking for forgiveness if they feel they need it, but at the same time, you wonder if there's something there that's working to inculcate a guiltier conscience, right? Or a, my wife likes to talk about having an overactive conscience about certain things, right? Where you do one small thing wrong and then you apologize 18 million times, things like that, right? I wonder if there's something like that happening there. So um, did anyone not get a lot of talk about hell at all as a young person? Kim, you're raising your hand. Um, I was raised um, Presbyterian and 
I wouldn't say we talked much about it at all. I mean, I taught Sunday school for a while, um, you know, youth Sunday school wasn't really in the curriculum. Um, yeah, I think it was pretty minimized. I mean, aside from the just the um, congregational um, unison prayer confession, I just don't remember hearing about it. Maybe I blocked it out, but it just didn't seem like a big part of our discussion at all. Yeah, sure. I had a few Catholic friends and I, I always, even at the age of like seven or eight, I thought it was really weird that they had to almost like make up stuff they did wrong when they went to confession, you know, say so something to say. Right. Like, so, so yeah, I, I think we got off um, easy. I didn't, I didn't have nightmares about hell. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so, it's interesting, right? That I, I think there are people that have that experience as well. Wendy. So I, I was raised in the Episcopal church I do not recall ever hearing anything frightening about hell. Everything at church was done through the liturgy and just, you know, by rote almost. So yeah. the words didn't have meaning. So if there were scary statements in there, I didn't hear them. Sure. Put it that sure. way. Sure. So. Barry. I grew up a Methodist. We weren't allowed to say hell. <laughs> In fact, it, it, it kind of blew me away the first time I uh, heard the Apostles' Creed in a Presbyterian church, because in the Methodist, he descended into hell is not there. Right. So it was like a, a non-existent thing. Does it, uh, in Methodist use, do people say he descended to the dead? Or is the no, line that, just omitted? That, that phrase is not there. He descended oh. into hell is not in the Apostles' Creed. Wow, that's wild. It wasn't then. Now, that was a couple of years ago. I'm, I'm, I may write a strongly worded letter to some Methodists about that. I think I'm you not, should. I'm not well, I, grew sure. up, I grew up Presbyterian in the Peace USA, and that was omitted from our version of the Apostles' Creed as well, Barry. Really? All right. Well, now y'all are teaching me something. With that, it also. Huh. I was surprised because I was taught with it. All right. Let the let the record show that there. Are, this the, this is a mystery that I want to look into. This is fascinating. So, um. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, with the exception of my sort of unusual one-off experience at my best friend's church when I was 10, I don't know if I ever, to this day, I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon, a real hellfire and brimstone sermon, what you would classify as a, um, yeah, you know, something really designed to scare the sin out of you, right? Um, and that's just my experience, sounds like. Um, it's been the experience of a few others and it's it's interesting right i think often the church in america you find sort of a polarization or a, a a strong opposition that where things kind of mirror each other right so either you get um a really strong emphasis on on health that in some ways makes some people uncomfortable right where it's gosh, it's scaring young people or it's scaring adults or oh my, whatever it may be, or you get kind of an omission of the topic, right? Um, and, and that people may be grateful for that. You may think, yes, that's exactly the right strategy to pursue. It's interesting to me that these are sort of mirror images of one another or, or photo negatives, right? We, so you either have a, a really strong emphasis on it or an almost complete absence of the topic. And I think this is of interest just because it, it speaks to, um, yeah, I mean, 
if we're, if we're if we're not talking about something, I'm always curious about why we're not talking about that thing, right? I think that's my instinct as a um, as a theologian, as a pastor. I want to know, okay, what's what what are we tiptoeing around there? Last question. So what what questions do you have at this point in your spiritual journey about the idea of heaven and hell? What do you wish you understood more fully? So I guess the question I have is we always hear that you can repent and accept Christ into your life, like on your deathbed. Mm -hmm. So I know probably not everyone does do that, but if that's a possibility, I guess I wonder, well, then who does go to hell? And like, I mean, maybe people who don't, who don't do that, but it seems like if you had the choice and you were dying, a lot of people probably might. Sure. And then the whole thing that was brought up sometime in the past year that I had never heard before this idea of Christ, like reaching down into hell and pulling everybody out. I mean, there was something that I had never heard in my entire life. Um, and I'm, so I, I'm very still confused by that whole concept. What, what really happened there and what is, what does that actually mean? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. When we, when we taught on the apostles creed last year, we had a, a whole session on that line about he descended into hell and the, the ancient idea of the so-called harrowing of hell um, or, you know, where, it, as you say, Jesus is kind of busting into <laughs> the realm of the dead and kind of preaching the good news to people and maybe pulling those, some, some of those people out with him into God's kingdom. Um, that, that's not a particularly well-known idea, although it's a very old one in the church. Um, thank you. Thank you, Kim, for, sh for sharing that. Um, other questions or things you want to know? Uh, yeah. Well, just the whole concept of what heaven is. I know it's supposed to be fabulous, but some of the songs I hear that heaven would be just seeing Jesus and seeing God and that and this being and that's it that's heaven there's a glory this being there um i read a book hans Kung. he described what which kind of made me feel a little more comfortable is that heaven has it's if we can imagine all that's good on earth that we know mm -hmm. well heaven is beyond that yeah but it's also inclusive yeah so this is part of the kingdom right now god's right. kingdom so heaven could only be something more than what we already have. Right. So, so that's a little more comforting than just, well, this is going to be a ethereal thing where there, there's the, like a glow of God and we're just there yeah. praising God. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful cartoon I saw once that was two angels in heaven sitting next to each other on a cloud. And they were just there by themselves. And one of them was look, looking at the other one and he said, I wish I'd brought a magazine. <laughs> and I, I think it sort of got at that part of that question of, you know, how do we, anytime we imagine something good, we eventually get tired of it. How do we imagine eternal life um, it, as a positive thing to say nothing of how do we imagine <laughs> eternal damnation or separation from God? What does that look like? Um, and I think that points to, I think that's another reason why people sometimes are reluctant to engage this topic is that it seems kind of speculative or like, you know, 
removed from our present day experience. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's all the more reason to talk about it, but it certainly is an important question, right? What, what are these realities like? How do we, what are they actually going to be like when we experience them? How can we describe them and understand them as best we can within the limits of our powers as human beings? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really important. Am I on mute? No, no, go. Okay. I don't need to know the answer to this. And whatever the answer would be, would actually, I think, would be speculation. But I am curious to, to know of different versions or different ways of looking at this. I've heard that when we leave this body, <laughs> at the time when we pass on, when we make the transition from this world into the next, or at some point when we are in heaven, it might be the intersection of body, soul, and spirit. I've heard it will be a totally new body, a new element for that new environment where we'll be. And I'm curious, you know, maybe where those the different ideas come from, or do we really need to know? I don't really need to know. Uh, I, I'll just trust. I'll sure. trust Jesus. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm curious where these ideas come from and what, what backs them up. Sure. Like the intersection of body, you mean, and soul and spirit? Like the person that I am, the personality that I am, like the I, the what, what, what makes me. Yeah. And also the soul. I can understand that. But the body, really? The body is like is suited for the elements on earth. Yeah. And some bodies are burned, some bodies just decay. Right. So some of my friends at the seminary were doing doctoral dissertations on theology and disability. So yes. right, this, this gets really complicated if you think about, you know, so some if someone has Down syndrome, right? Like who mm -hmm. they are now uh -huh. is a person with Down syndrome and with the wonderful heart and beautiful spirit and also limited cognitive abilities sometimes of people with that illness right what what are they going to be like in the kingdom of god you know it, like when they have the spiritual body that paul talks about in first corinthians 15 you know are they going to be are they going to walk talk and look like brad pitt are they going to be the image of you know the fit and healthy person that's another aspect of this that is really important, right? Is what does, yeah, what does um, final trans, what does the final physical transformation of people look like? That's certainly an important question as well. Mm -hmm. And what do we mean by physical either? Once yeah. we are at that place. And the other thing, I remember having gone uh, to uh, the Sunday school class that had to do with astronomy. We had yeah. a professor. Uh, anybody was in that one? Uh, Heather, maybe Heather. And I was just in awe on what and he uh, spoke of the, the universe and the universe nurseries. Anybody remember that? It's like a place where like new galaxies form. And like no sooner something dies, another galaxy forms. There's always like there are always new galaxies forming. It just took me away, blew me away. And sometimes I think, well, we are made of stardust. 
Are we going to become part of that universe as something out there that's stardust? But in whatever it is that it, we are going to be, it's going to feel, it's going to be magnificent. It's going to be a kaleidoscope of everything better than I could ever imagine. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Okay, so that's far out. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that's <Nope>. it. <laughs> but those thoughts that come to my mind. Yeah, sure. Thanks for listening. Um, I was just going to point to add to what Tony was saying with things she's heard. And I was one of the things that I've heard is that there is no physical body yeah. afterwards. And it's just what is kind of your spirit or your mind or something floating out there. So sort of like a, like that's kind of hard. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of hard to get her figure out what that is so yeah sure sure yeah i think it i think what you're saying with gail is that it could be like some kind of element or spiritual thing that can that will be able to withstand the the glow of god i think of like a, when god said to moses and others like if you would actually see me right like you would not be able to live kind of thing. It's like, you can't. In this body that we have now, we cannot actually see well, it. Would, it wouldn't be a body. It would just be, I don't know, your mind. I don't know. Yes, it would be something that can withstand <laughs> that well, intensity of God. Yeah. Is it, in is his it fullness. It, isn't it our soul that goes to heaven? Yeah. So yeah. that's our, it, it, our, our soul is our identity, right? So we maintain an identity and it's, it's a, a spirit. It would be our soul that, that <laughs> remains. Everything else is gone. Yeah. All material, like you're saying, Gail, there is, there will be no material. There are no atoms. It's a, it's a totally a realm I, I, that we does not even, that we exist, but we, we can't even comprehend it. All right. We might, need, we might wait, 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 wait. Hold on. We might, we might need to convene a small working group on this topic because there's really an extraordinary amount of interest on bodily resurrection and 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 stuff like that. Let me, if we may, I want to call on a few more people. Um, and then I need to play you the song that this course is named after. Deb has had her hand up for a, a quite a while. Would you like to share your thoughts with us, Deb? Yes. Um, I'm interested in pursuing the idea of different levels of hell mm. or levels of heaven sure. because it just doesn't make sense to me that somebody who's maybe a thief goes to the same place as somebody who commits murder sure or someone who's um, not committed any kind of crime but has not done good for any other people yeah you know where do they go so, sure Sure. So have you ever read uh, Dante? Um, Dante's Inferno or the Divine Comedy or things like this. So he very famously, it's probably the most influential work of literature ever written about heaven and hell. And in it, he visits hell and it's hell has like seven different circles. And he starts, he starts at the very best circle of hell and he winds up at the very worst one, I, I believe. Um, and it's organized exactly the way you describe. It has different levels, right? So the, the very worst level is like people who killed their parents and 
people who betrayed their native land and did all kinds of horrible stuff. And then it gradually gets better. And the very best part of hell is virtuous people who died um, not knowing about Jesus. So they're like, it's not really hell. They're like stuck in the DMV for eternity, right? Like it could be way worse. Um, but they can't go to heaven, but they're certainly not as bad off as the worst people, right? So, you know, you, there are some people that would say that's a very attractive idea. We'll have an opportunity to kind of revisit those themes in what follows, yeah. Um, Nate, I see you've got a hand up in your icon. Do you want to say something? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I wrote down two questions uh, for Heaven Hell. Um, the first one that I came to mind is, as a dad, it just bugs me. Like, how does a loving father delve out an eternal punishment? Uh, like, I put my kids in a corner for five minutes, right? And right. that's it, because uh, they're five years old. Or they're 10, and so I take away something, and then I give it back, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> after 100 years on the earth, if I make it that long, or 65, if I don't even make it to that far, you know, and it's like, and there's a very final thing that's that's hard for me to wrap my head around even as a 40 year old man sure uh just i don't know if i'll ever be able to grasp that and, and truly get that the yeah. other side of it is uh the other question i have is there seems to be at least in the midwest we see it during funerals a lot there's a lot of hard uh conversations around burial cremation oh. burial at sea if you're cremated can god really take care of you uh you know because you're, you've been disintegrated. So, and now you're, are you in hell because you burnt your, you know, on fire, you know? And, and to me, you know, when people say that stuff to me, I, I've always just kind of very tongue in cheek said, well, you know, he's not much of a God if he can't put you back together. Um, but at the same time, it seems to be a real question here in the Midwest that people really do struggle with, sure. uh, you know? And so I think there may be some interesting things there historically, you know, how were people, buried or cremated or how you know maybe there was a hierarchy there the, the rich could do something that the poor couldn't do or, or things like that you know and i'd be very yeah. interested to learn more about that yeah i mean I, I know for a long time right so statistically speaking the roman catholic church is the the 800 pound gorilla right they're just so much vastly larger than protestant denominations even put together and i know i i believe for a long time the official catholic line was you cannot be cremated and be buried as a Catholic. Um, and so I think that that may have something to do with it. I think that official line has in fact been changed now. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that's correct. Uh, certainly that would play into it, although there, it may be a very complicated issue um, even beyond that. So thanks, Nate. Uh, I'm gonna call on Tom and then we're gonna listen to our song. Uh, going back to what Gail said, and I think it was Lou uh, talking about the afterlife, whatever that is, as being sort of a, an ethereal spirit sort of uh, existence. I told Dave uh, the other day that the reason, one of the reasons I was interested in this series was we had been reading a lot in our Bible study groups about the Apostle Paul and reading his letters, and he talks repeatedly about the resurrection of the body, that, that we, there will come a time when we will all be raised in the body. And so my question was, well, what does that mean? Go, just add to the mix of all the other sure. things that have been sure. said. Well, uh, um, we'll do a, uh, 
we can do a special breakout session of this group on first Corinthians 15 and talk about the resurrection of the body. Cause that's like, it's one of the most beautiful passages in Paul. And it's also very difficult. And he starts out talking, saying Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead bodily. And then he goes on this amazing kind of tangent as Paul does of talking about our resurrection as Christians. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's enormously complicated and fascinating. So um, that's something we can do. All right, let me, thank you all so much for sharing. This is just fascinating. I'm glad this topic is of interest to you. There, I know there are a lot of questions and a lot of personal experiences and a lot of hopes percolating out there. And I'm, I'm just so glad to be journeying with you as we reflect about this. Um, I wanted to, I named this course after a song, a song called Until the End of the World. And it's by the rock band U2. They're from Ireland. Um, they were very, very famous in the 80s and 90s. They're sort of in semi-retirement now, but I still think they're great. How many of you have heard this song before? Have any of you heard this song before? A few of us, okay. So it may be familiar to some of you, probably not that familiar to all of you. I'm actually going to, in a moment, I'm going to play it on YouTube. Um, and um, it has the lyrics printed underneath. So I want you to just um, listen to the song and follow along and reflect, especially on the lyrics um, and the see if you can spot the relevance of this song to what we're talking about as a group. Thank you. 
All right. We're both working from home. The high-speed internet is absolutely critical. Get fired. All right. I will mute YouTube there. Okay, so what's that, what's that song about? It's about, can I speak? Yeah, please. It, it's, uh, I think it's Judas talking to Jesus or yes. <laughs> saying what happened in the, in the very end. Yes. Yeah. And uh, go ahead. And no, I mean, you know, they drank the cup, they ate the bread, they drank the cup. And Jesus kept talking about the end of the world. He was yes. telling them about he was going to die. Yep. And then it's Judas betrays him in the garden. Mm -hmm. You know, betrays him. And then in the end, where I think it may be coming to this, uh, about the regret and then the joy, he reached out to the one he tried to destroy. Yep. So is he asking for forgiveness and redemption? I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's exactly right, Betty. That's exactly the same way I read the song. Yeah. Okay. So I first encountered this song when I was like 13 or 14 and I hated it because I didn't get it. Um, I thought it was a dumb love song. And I was like, what is this song even about? Who cares about this song? I'm not interested in this. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s, I think, that I listened to the lyrics of the song and it hit me like a thunderclap that it was about Judas and Jesus. Mm -hmm. and well, I kind of cheated, I have to say, because I was more in my 40s. <laughs> or so, and uh, Jeff Kohler, who was our youth pastor, was a big U2 fan, so yeah, I, I kind of... <laughs> he, he tipped you off a little bit, huh? Yeah, yeah, back then, so. Well, I mean, it's... So, Betty's summary of the song is really helpful, right? So, I encourage you to... You got a, a first pass on the, on the lyrics if you were watching. You can Google it. Um, and study them at your leisure, I encourage you to listen to it again. It's a song of, that's spoken from the point of view of Judas, talking to, talking to Jesus. And the song begins when he says, I haven't seen you in quite a while. I was down in a hole, just passing time. Last time we met, it was a lonely room. We were as close together as a bride and groom. We ate the food, we drank the wine, everybody was having a good time except for you. And he, it's almost beat for beat. It's a very wry, wonderful summary of the passion story. And he talks about, you know, betraying Jesus and breaking his heart in the garden. And then there's this amazing last verse where he says, um, waves of regret and waves of joy I reached out for the one I tried to destroy. Mm -hmm. You, you said you would wait until the end of the world. So it's, and then the song ends. And the, the last thing you hear in the song is just the repeated word, love, 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 over again. And the song kind of concludes. Um, it's, it's a very powerful artistic statement, whatever you may think of it as, as a work of Christian theology as well. Um, so let's take that as a hypothesis for a second, right? So this song is saying, okay, we all assume that Judas was the worst guy ever in the history of the world because he betrayed Jesus. And if anyone's in hell, it's probably Judas. 
And the song is saying, well, what if that's not true? What, it would look, what would it look like to imagine the redemption of a sinner as bad as Judas? What, what reaction do you have to that? Is that encouraging, exciting, confusing, frustrating? Um, what reaction do you have? Well, I have a reaction just to Judas himself, for example. If it wasn't God in God's plan for someone to be a traitor to Jesus, somebody had to do it, and it just happened to be this soul named Jesus, named Judas. So the fact, the statement that he makes in the song that at the end, uh, you know, Jesus kept saying, "Wait till the end of the world." Like so, Judas is relieved. Love, love, love. At least at the end of the world, God knew that. In a way, Judas was God's instrument in getting Jesus to the to be crucified. So God would redeem Judas hmm. at the end of the world time. Sure, interesting. I mean, that's what I think. I, actually, I think the state the statement that the song is making at the end is that. Sure, that's my opinion. Okay. okay. Um, other responses to the themes of the song. Like Judas uh, not being in hell, that's it's such a great piece of relief. If you hear that through the lens of this idea that even what we would consider the worst of us had to play a role in the story of Christ's resurrection. Mm -hmm. He can't die and can't be resurrected from the dead if he's not betrayed by his best friend. Like this all leads to that, right? And so he could have sang the song about maybe the 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 gentleman who who stabs him with the spear on the cross or or the people who spit on him and mock him right mm -hmm. we we've all felt that moment in the sermon where some where they say we would have been there doing the same in the present day and God died Jesus sure. died for our sins right sure the plausibility that he died for Judas's sins and his love is so grand we can't really even grasp it understand it or even share it in the same way because his ways are not our ways is so redemptive that you just kind of look at God and go, wow, who am I, you know, in the midst of something mm -hmm. like that, that you would, you would forgive me when you know my worsts. So, yeah. 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 I mean, I think, I think there's something very powerful about the idea. So part of the appeal of the song, right. Is, is it's simply a, powerful assertion of the redeeming love of God, right? That nobody is beyond redemption, not even the guy who famously betrayed Jesus and then took his own life kind of out of despair, right? Or according to the gospel story. And um, Deb, you had your hand up. Yeah, um, I don't think that we want him to be forgiven. You don't think that we want him to be what? Forgiven. Hmm. You know, we talked about earlier, um, like even on your deathbed, you could ask for forgiveness and go to heaven and everything. And if I'm typical, I don't think people want Judas to be forgiven. Sure. They, they nourish a grudge against him because of what we know he did. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I make myself laugh by imagining some of my favorite people next to me in heaven. Um, you know, oh gosh, I really hope that person doesn't wind up 
in heaven too. They probably will be, but gosh, if I run it right, and it's the uh, the same sort of idea replayed in a more comic tone, right? That there are people that we know that we <laughs> we don't like, and we have reason not to like them, and it's hard to grapple. I mean, you know, anyone who's tr if you've tried to forgive someone who has wronged you, you personally, right? You know, it's very, it's often very hard to live into that call to forgive people. That's hard stuff, right? And so, you know, if we're hearing a story that says, okay, what if the very worst among us could be forgiven? Um, it's that much more challenging, right? And, and maybe some people just don't want that. Um, thank you. Other um, thoughts about the message of this song? Dave, to, to me, one of the things that comes comes up periodically and we touched on it earlier was uh the worst of us can be given the same salvation and forgiveness and reap the same benefits in heaven as the best of us mm -hmm. those why so so there's a sense of fairness right that's almost like a christian value in and of itself right yeah sure sure so, you know this guy's lied and cheated and on his wife and he's stolen and he's murdered. And, you know, Putin's going to be in heaven next to me because he repents on his deathbed. Come on. Oh, well. give me a break. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm <laughs> perfect, but I think no. I mean, <laughs> you probably got an edge on Vladimir Putin. I think yeah. I can, I can confidently say that you may have a leg up on him. Okay. That was a good um, comparison. <laughs> So, I mean, no, I mean, I think that's, that's a big part of it, right? And a lot of the gospels are, are about this as well is, <laughs> you know, Jesus, uh, Jesus did a lot of things to get people angry at him. But one thing he did is, in, is extend God's forgiveness to people um, in a way that made others angry, right? So the, the whole story of the prodigal son is about this, right? You know, it's not just it's not just that the father welcomes him back, but it's that the older brother gets really pissed off. Um, and you know, many of us that are in the church are older brother types, right? I certainly am. Um, so yeah, there's there. If the end of the journey is the same for the good and the bad, why would we bother to live a good life now? A very important question, right? So I was just reading a book yesterday that is basically a defense of the idea of hell. And part of what the author said is that, is that he used that to, to, to support his idea of hell, right? And so the reason we need to, one reason we need to hold on to the traditional belief in hell is that it helps, it makes how we live of ultimate moment, right? Um, and if you don't have that, ultimately it's done away with. But it's a very interesting point you raised. Thank you. Um, Betty. But aren't we saved by grace? So, I mean, this is the ultimate grace in, in this song. Right. You know, I mean, so it to me, it, it it's like the same thing when we were studying the Apostles' Creed, when he descended into hell, the idea that Jesus would go to try and, and redeem yeah. others. I mean, I found that hopeful. You know, no. I try to leave a good, a good life, but I'm, I'm more than happy to welcome people that would find joy and peace and love. I, you know, maybe, maybe it's the old hippie in me, but. 
<laughs> um, so I, I want to say, I think that's, a, that's close to the heart of the debate that we're going to look mm -hmm. at over the next several weeks. So part of what we're going to see as we explore this topic together is a bunch of different points of view on these topics. And one of the things you'll, so the question of human accountability for sin, of God's grace, um, does grace shine out more brightly if it's extended to everybody, if it's extended as broadly as humanly possible, or if it's, if it's extended only to a certain few, why does God extend grace to some rather than others? Or, or, or um, why does he extend it to a few or a lot or to everyone? A lot of these questions, many of the questions we've been kicking around are, are in the mix in the Christian theological tradition. Um, we've already been talking for an hour. So I should probably tell you a little bit more about what we're gonna do in this course. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna move on and do a little bit of that and so that we can wrap up at about 8.30, if not before. I only realized after I um, put these slides together that the, the color scheme is kind of fiery. <laughs> um, that, was, that was not intentional on my part. Is this the I, like, I wanted some bright colors because I thought for sure like people would fall asleep otherwise. Um, so, <laughs> um, you know, not trying to make a statement one way or another by those colors. So um, let me talk a little bit about the goals for this course. So there's basically two big goals that we're going to tackle in the next five weeks. Um, so the first is I want to introduce you to a tradition of Christian reflection on heaven, hell, and salvation. Um, and a tradition of reflection on Holy Scripture. So people have been thinking about this um, and arguing about it and talking about it for 2,000 years now, at least. It's very ancient. There have been a lot of, you know, smart people and some not so smart people that have come along and, and put their oar in the water. And we're going to listen to some of their voices. We're also going to be guided by them to a greater understanding of the Bible. So one of the things I want to be committed to in a course like this is um, diving into scripture, right? So I don't want my beliefs to just arise willy-nilly. I want them to be related to what we find in the Bible um, because that's the one of the things that ties us back to the tradition we come from and to the, ultimately to the people that knew Jesus and, and set down the Bible. Um, as you'll see, the idea of engaging scripture, there's still a lot of room to move in there. <laughs> um, we'll talk more about that. Okay. Um, I want to introduce you to the diversity of this tradition of reflection on heaven, hell, and salvation. It's a diverse tradition, um, simply as a matter of historical fact. Right? If you, if you just pick up a history textbook and said, what have Christians believed through the many centuries about heaven and hell and salvation, you'd find more than one answer. Um, there is not just one point of view. 
um, that simple fact can be surprising. Um, if you've, especially if you've grown up in the church um, or were exposed to a lot of hell talk um, through the course of your life, you may be surprised to hear that, but it's, it's, it's the nature of the case. That doesn't mean anything goes. Um, this is not a brief for, you know, I say potato, you say potato, um, but the diversity is real. Specifically, what we're going to do over the next four weeks is take a look at four different views on salvation and eternal life. And we're going to spend a week with each of them. Um, and I think that's a good way to get a flavor for each one and begin to learn a little bit more about how they differ from each other and how they, um, what, the, uh, what their relative strengths and weaknesses are. So what I'm going to do now is quickly introduce those four views to you one at a time. So this is like a quick hits version of what the next four weeks will be. So, okay. The first view has a doozy of a name, but it's an accurate description. Eternal conscious torment. I will also call this the traditional view. Um, it's often taken to be, you know, it's, it is the um, most popular probably and the most influential view within the Christian tradition, unquestionably. So that when, when we talk about hell, this is probably what most of us are thinking of, right? So this view stipulates that heaven and hell are both real and that all of humanity is basically divided into two groups, right? People, the saved and the damned, people who go to heaven and people go, who go to hell. And as the name suggests, there are three features of this view that distinguish it from the other views we're going to talk about. So one, hell is eternal. So hell goes on forever and ever, just like heaven. Second, hell is conscious. So the, the damned are um, awake and alive, and they are aware that they are being punished and can't get out. Yeah. Third, hell is torment, right? So hell is a punitive experience. It is, it is intentionally designed to punish those who are in it. And so there's a, a um, never-ending conscious experience of spiritual and emotional pain that accrues to the people who are there. So um, you can see here that there are a lot of famous exponents of this view throughout the history of the church. The most famous one, the one we're going to look at next week, is a guy named Augustine of Hippo. Um, Hippo was a small town in North Africa in modern-day Tunisia, where Augustine was a pastor. He lived in the 300s and 400s, um, and he, his views on heaven and hell became incredibly influential and kind of were passed on to the Catholic tradition in the West and to us Protestants through the Catholic Church. Um, so he's incredibly important. We'll look at him. John Calvin, the founder of our Reformed tradition and theology, also held to this view. Um, Jonathan Edwards, a very famous Reformed Christian here in the United States, who briefly lived in Princeton, where I had my old stomping grounds, held to this view. Martin Luther didn't exactly hold this view, but he was close enough that we'll kind of pull him into that account. So um, you, don't have to, you don't have to like this view. 
um, or enjoy learning about it, but it's a worthwhile starting place because it's so influential in the tradition of the church. And as we'll see, this point of view um, has actually has a great many virtues. <laughs> there are things that commend this point of view to the believer, and I don't want to pass those over. Um, although, like many of you, I do have some um, criticisms of this view, some things I'm, I'm not wild about, okay? That's next week. That's the first view, eternal conscious torment. Second view, universalism. So this is pretty much the opposite number to the view we just looked at. So universalism is the view that everyone is saved um, or everyone is saved in the end. Um, you might describe this as a minority brief in the history of the church. So the traditional view, the eternal conscious torment view is by far the most popular and influential historically. This view um, probably has fewer people that adhere to it, um, but it's definitely there. And when you poke around in the history of the church, you will find these people no two ways about it. Um, the universalist basically holds what you see here. Humanity is not ultimately divided into two groups. Everyone will be saved, or at least everyone will be saved eventually. Some um, adherence of universalism might go so far as to deny that hell exists at all. Other more sophisticated versions of universalism say, okay, hell is real, but hell is purgative rather than punitive. So by purgative, I mean it's designed to purge you of your sins. So hell is less like a torture chamber, right? Or a place of punishment that you can never escape from and more like, um, what? More like a refiner's fire that's designed to burn away the dross and refine the gold so that it is purified. So on this telling someone indeed might go to hell after they die, but the aim of hell is not to punish that person eternally, but to purify them so they eventually experience hell. So people in this camp include Christians old and new. So you get people like um, the famous Christian thinker Origen of Alexandria, who lived during the third century AD. He died in 253. He's widely regarded as the first real Christian theologian. Um, a more recent person is George MacDonald, who lived in the 18th, uh, sorry, the 19th and 20th century. Um, one contemporary example is a guy named David Bentley Hart, who is an Eastern Orthodox theologian who teaches and works at Notre Dame University. Um, there are, for reasons we'll get into in this course, there are lively debates about other figures that some assert belong in this camp and others assert don't belong in this camp, right? But these are, these are broad types that are helpful for figuring out who belongs where. That's the second view, universalism. So we've got the traditional view, eternal conscious torment, the second view, universalism. Okay. The third view is um, what we might winsomely call annihilationism. Um, this one way of thinking it, thinking about it is um, it shares a lot of properties with the first view, with eternal conscious torment, but it um, tones it down a little bit. So someone with this point of view might say, 
hell is real. Humanity is indeed divided ultimately into the damned and the saved. But unlike the eternal conscious torment view for the annihilationist, hell is not eternal. Hell is not eternal. So the, um, the damned, the people who are sent to hell, are punished ultimately by being destroyed. They pass out of existence. They do not experience eternal life. They just, they cease to be, right? It is only the saved that enjoy eternal life. So you can see this is akin to the traditional view in many ways, but it's tempered. So the punishment is not eternal and it is not therefore conscious and eternal. So the punishment is not as severe. Um, you can see here there are famous adherents as well. So there's a guy named Arnobius who lives during the third and fourth centuries, um, a very famous evangelical Christian from England named John Stott, who passed away about 10 years ago, held this view. Um, there's a man named N.T. Wright, who's um, still alive today, who's a very famous New Testament scholar, Anglican bishop in England. He also adheres to this view. So you'll see here that this is an effort to again, to, to temper the strenuousness and the severity of the first view. So that's the third one. Here's the fourth one. The fourth one, fourth one is what I'm calling agnosticism. Um, <clears throat> and that's a little bit different. Usually when we talk about someone being an agnostic, that means they don't know or can't decide if there's a God or not. So I'm, uh, this is um, uh, different than that. And it refers specifically to agnosticism about universalism. So you can see here, heaven and hell are real, but we, we Christians, do not know whether hell will be populated. So it may turn out that hell will be empty and that in fact all will be saved. So very much like the third view we saw, the annihilationist view, this fourth view, agnosticism, is akin to universalism. It bears a family resemblance to it, but it also is tempered. It tones it down a little bit. So the agnostic typically asserts that we can hope and pray that everyone will be saved. So there's a, a very famous book on this subject by a theologian, and the, the title is just that. The title is Dare We Hope that all will be saved? And the, the answer he gives is yes. Um, so we can hope and pray that all will be saved, but we cannot assume or expect or proclaim that everyone will be saved. So the, the, the argument here is that the universalist is not necessarily wrong. They put their finger on a real possibility but they typically go a bit too far and are too confident in arriving at a conclusion that um, is not definite, but should instead be left tentative. Does that make sense? Are you all with me so far? So um, the, the two famous adherents of this point of view are two of the 20th century's most famous theologians. They're, they're both, um, German dudes. One is a Catholic named Hans Urs von Balthasar. It's an awesome, totally German name. I love it. The other is a guy named Karl Barth. Um, and they both wrote extensively on this, this topic. Um, 
let me stop there for a minute and just ask if there are any questions or if there's anything I can clarify or if you want to weigh in at this point. Yes, uh, Dave, I have a question. Yeah. Um, we have four different possibilities here. And uh, are we to assume that we can pick from one of these and it'll be one of those or is it a combination of many? Sure. So we're, we're about to get into that. Um, okay. Um, so let me hold off on answering that and, and then we'll, um, I want you to come back and ask me again if at the end of these slides I haven't explained it to you. Uh, will we be getting sort of a, uh, a handout on this that, that would come in the mail, uh, in my case, because an iPhone, uh, so we can be prepared ahead of time with the questions? Sure. So I'm going to, we will get into that as well. <laughs> so just sit tight. All, all your questions will be answered, I promise. Uh, I'm, I'm 87, so don't hold off too long. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Vic. Um, anything else I can make plain for you at this point? Okay, so let's, let's, uh, let's go back to the goals of the course, right? So the first tradition is to introduce you to this tradition of reflecting upon heaven, hell, and salvation, and scripture as informing this reflection. So if, if you come out of this course and you're like, hey, I know more about what Christians have historically thought about heaven and hell, I get that it's more diverse than we, it often thinks, that's great. If you come out of this course and think, okay, I know more about the Bible now, I will be over the moon, right? So one of the things you really see when you study a course like this is the connection between our beliefs and the Bible. Ultimately, when Christians start disagreeing and talking about things like this, they are driven back to Holy Scripture. They are driven back to the Bible, which is where our faith comes from. And so a lot of the differences um, between these points of view, a lot of the places where they diverge, come down to basic questions of how do we interpret the Bible we have? What does the Bible mean when it says X, Y, and Z? You, right? Um, second, I want to help you see and reflect upon the various strengths and weaknesses of these four positions. So, this kind of goes back to Vic's question, right? So um, this is not a cafeteria and I am not the lunch lady. So th these are not options that I'm inviting you to pick from based on whatever you feel like or whatever happens to suit your needs, right? Um, I would encourage you to approach the topic reverently and um, to to take the invitation we find here to read the Bible carefully and consider carefully what the Bible has to say about Jesus and the final destiny of humanity. And I think you'll find that that's a lot more satisfying than simply saying, I like X, Y, and Z, so I'm gonna go with that. Um, another reason I wanted to teach this class is because I actually really believe that all four of the points of view we're gonna discuss are interesting, <laughs> right? If one of them was simply totally wrong and nothing but baloney, the course would be less interesting. But what's interesting is that they all do make a certain contribution. So it's worth studying just for that. I certainly have my opinions on the subject um, and I'm happy to share those with you, um, but, 
I'll say up front, my goal is not necessarily to convince you to think the same thing that I think. I want to help you think more deeply and clearly about why you believe what you believe and how that relates to your life as a Christian. So that's, that's part of my goal. Um, let's see. Okay. Let me say um, a few more things about um, the structure of this course, and then I'll take some more questions. Okay. So um, we're going to spend about, we will spend no more than 90 minutes a week meeting. So um, it'll be a little bit longer than the 50 or 60 minutes we would typically get on a Sunday morning, but not quite as long as two hours. So hopefully that's like the ideal amount of time to come in, have a substantive conversation and get out before you fall asleep because I'm talking too much, okay? So about no more than 90 minutes. Um, I, the second thing is I can't make any claim to originality for the ideas that I'm presenting here. One of the things you'll see as we work through the course is I'm leaning heavily on an article by one of my former teachers from Princeton Seminary, a guy named George Hunsinger, who wrote an article that basically has the very same structure as this course. So I, I'm leaning heavily on him. I have a copy of that article and I will make it available to you for free if you want it. Um, it's worth reading. It's, um, it's difficult. Um, but you can read it slowly and in chunks over the course of the next five weeks, if you'd like. It's, it's very deep and profound. Um, in addition to that article by Professor Hunsinger, I will also regularly send you lists of um, recommended readings. So the, read, the, the key word there is recommended. So the readings are the kind of thing where I think you'll get even more out of this class if you read them and engage with them, but you are not required to read or engage with them to come and attend. And you are encouraged to mouth off and share your opinions even if you haven't done the reading. <laughs> so it's like, this, this is like school without any pressure, right? Um, so I will make those available to you as well. Um, most of the, um, all of the readings and articles and such will go up on paoliprez.org slash adults. And that's the webpage you clicked on to get to this class. So you should find it all there. So there will be links to selected Bible passages, links to works by different authors, um, and so on and so forth. Let's see. Two more things. Um, I can't speak for anyone at this church. Um, I can't speak for the church as a whole. I certainly can't speak for John or Becca. I'm only speaking for myself. Um, so first thing. The second thing is I want to let you know in advance that um, not all of your questions will be answered by the end of this course. I, I just go ahead and cry those tears now. I'm sure some, you will have some urgent questions that will still be with you or what will happen, I call it theology whack-a-mole. So theology whack-a-mole is a thing that happens, you know, you know the game whack-a-mole that you've played at the carnival, you've played it with your children or grandchildren where the thing pops up and you hit it with the hammer and then you hit it and two other things pop up, right? This is the nature of theological questioning, at least in my life. So I answer one big theological question and I think, aha, I got it, good, I'm learning something. And then two other big issues appear in the background for me to solve. So hopefully uh, this class will shed some light on some of the questions you have. Um, there may be other questions that arise, 
um, we can only do an in introductory um, survey in this class. But I, I can suggest books and further articles if you're interested in going deeper. I would love to continue to journey with you and talk with you um, if that's if you're hungry for more. Fantastic, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for your participation and for discussing these issues. So next week, we're going to jump into the deep end and talk about eternal conscious torment uh, or the traditional view. So gird up your loins <laughs> and um, uh, join us next week. Um, this class, we've recorded it, as you all know, we're going to make it available on paleoprez.org slash adults, um, hopefully in the next couple days. It's not too late for anyone who wasn't here tonight to join us next week. Um, if you can't make it next week, but you want to come back in the future, next week's class is going to be recorded as well. Um, but I certainly hope all of you will come back and, and participate. Um, I'm going to send out an email with some recommendations for scripture and Dr. Hunsinger's article uh, probably tomorrow as well. Um, so I'll, I'll look forward to sending that to you. Um, until next week, thank you and God bless you. <laughs> <laughs>